Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I got the chance to speak with Rob Cousins recently, and I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We went all over the place, which is the best type, I think. If you like this, then you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And don't forget, there's like 380 of those now, so you can also find out more information at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this conversation. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Rob Cousins, who's a co-founder of OpenChange. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to come along and talk. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, what I like to do is find out about initiatives that people are involved in, which are doing something positive in the world, because um, we need to hear more stories of that. But before we talk about Open Change and what that's about, I like to go back in time. So I've got this uh, time machine in the corner over here, and we're going to jump in it. And I'd love to find out a little bit about your background. Um, so could you tell us about, say, when you were five years old, where were you living and what was life like? I was living in South London in um Probably one of the places everybody loves to hate. I, I grew up in Croydon, and uh, it's one of those places where there's there's nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing that right about it either. So everybody has these sort of horrible stories of um, of a place that was actually okay. And uh, five years old, I was just starting school, which um, for me was a. Uh, I think looking back on it, it was very traumatic because I was quite headstrong and independent. And, um, and all of a sudden, you sort of slot into having to sit down all day, have to do what somebody else is telling you what to do. And uh, that, that hadn't really been the way that I'd been. I think for my mum and dad, I was quite unruly. And uh, having to sort of settle down into sort of structures was um, a little strange. But most of my memories of being being in trouble. <laughs> um, for example, we we only lived you know two two miles from from the school and I remember once at end of school I you know you go out to the gate and all the parents are sort of hanging around there's a very busy noisy space you know full of noisy children coming out and happy parents waiting for their kids and I couldn't find my mum and uh, so I walked home I just thought well, I'm just not here I walked it a few times sort of know the way and uh, and I walked home and uh, it created this sort of uproar this is like the mid-1980s you don't have sort of phones or anything like that you have to sort of plan where you're going to be and uh, and I think my mum must have been at the gate wondering that you know his child's been stolen and um, so this little big search went underway around the area and I was just sitting at home I'd made it home the, you know the door was open so I went in I was probably eating something and uh, his mum got home and um, but yeah, I just remember being in huge trouble for that. Like there was relief that I was where I was. But you know, a couple of days later, the school had an assembly, and I was like pulled out up the front. Of uh, this is an example of what not to do. You know, do not you know make your own way home. And um, but I guess for me, there were sort of conflicting messages, really, because I you know still to this day, I don't think I did anything wrong. And um, but that the response to it was um it was like it was sort of marginalizing using your initiative or you know not rewarding you for thinking independently which i always thought is probably what you were supposed to be doing you were sort of learning to be a autonomous individual and um using your initiative to go home and make the journey successfully you know i sort of look back on it as a as a triumph really um but yeah, that, a... that's interesting as well, though, that, that they chose to make such a big deal out of it, because then, of course, you, you know, you're you're highlighted, you're up the front and then that affects perceptions and, and what people think. And I can imagine that it would have been a hard time in a way. But you're right. Showing that initiative was a in many ways a really a positive thing if it could have been thought that way as well. Oh, then maybe, but perhaps it did. I mean, this is what 35, 40 years ago. So, you know, you don't, don't always remember things that accurately, but it's the bit that stayed with me was, yeah, the, I guess there's this sort of shame of being pulled up the front or, um, you know, sort of using you as an example so that everybody else could, could, could learn from. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what anyone learned from that. I think I was the first kid that ever did it. I was probably the last one that ever did it as well. <laughs> so, you know, what problem did it really solve? Yeah. Well, that's interesting as well, though, from your adult's perspective, 
to think back to yourself at that age and the logic and and what it shows about you as a person as well. So it'll be interesting as we're talking through, like, are there themes that come through? And maybe that's one of them is trying trying things that are different from what other people might have done. Um, I'm interested in your comments as well. I remember when I was at this, I don't remember it. I was like five, right? But my mother says that I came home from the first day of school and said something along the lines of, oh yeah, it was fine. I, I don't think I'll go back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Not really understanding that I had a good decade <laughs> more to, to come. Yeah, this is you it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the flow from here. Yeah, yeah. that's right. But actually, you know, as a as a rabbit hole to go down briefly, I think this is one of the problems with our education system is that it doesn't encourage the independence and it actually discourages it. You know, you have to end up fitting in a box of did they pass this test? Did they score this result? Are they authorized to move on to the ability to study more? Whereas actually, I think lots of studies have shown that children who aren't faced with that pressure and have mm. creativity be encouraged, they're probably going to um, end up with a different mindset, you know, more of that growing and learning type of mindset rather than you have to memorize this fact or figure. Yeah, there's something that um, that sort of makes you sort of hide away the the skills or the strengths that, that, that you might have, like if you don't fit into uh, the sort of academic machine. For, for my two kids, I've got a 12 year old and a 14 year old and um one of them is very academically adept um so he can slot in pass the tests and come out without putting too much effort or or energy in and um and my other one is uh very smart he's an, but he's an absolute dreamer you know his feet are off the ground and head in the clouds and mm. you give him a complex board game and he will manage the maths on it and multiple scenarios that you need to to do. He's, he was sort of playing board games with sort of 14 plus when he was eight or nine. And um, But you put him in that sort of classroom environment and you just feel stifled. You know, there's very few sort of avenues for him to allow his sort of, you know, creativity flow. And, um, and it's quite, oh, it's a lot harder for him to hold his sense of, self or or see what he has to offer the world as being of value um because he struggles to sort of slot into that sort of those sort of academic paradigms yeah. and yet you know it's a rich experience that he has to offer it's quite it's quite sad yeah yeah i i reckon that in the future they'll look back and realize that you know the, the human brain and how it develops and the the importance of the very young young years and not trying to force certain conceptions or certain um, ways of studying. I think that's mm. going to be something that comes out in the future. Um, but we're all, we're, I use this a lot, but we're fish in the fishbowl. We all went to school. This is what we know. And therefore it's probably how we think it should be as well. Yeah. There's a friend of mine from school, from secondary school, high school that um, I often sort of think of is he, he was uh, he was the head boy. Um, he uh, was in the sort of block of, of kids that got sort of pushed to go to Oxford and Cambridge. And well, where I went to school, you were you were going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. And sort of any other career path was, I just saw you you'll get over that. You'll you'll move on. And um, and yeah, he did. He went to he went to Oxford, and then he went and joined. Barclays Bank as a um, graduate intern. These were like the pristine jobs that you might hope for on a graduate scheme. And I always remember, like, this is 18 months after that, he, he quit it and put right. it all to one side to go and become the apprentice photographer at the local newspaper. Because um, he's finally sort of found within himself the, the part of him that knew what he wanted to pursue or knew what he really valued and would, would give him some sort of meaning in his life. And uh, I always wonder what would have happened if the school would have encouraged or nurtured that, um, you know, where, how he might have been sort of set up to step forward, um, you know, in the way that he was stepping into a graduate scheme and made it back, mm. um, but instead into, into the arts. 
Yeah, right from the start. I just held this little event um, called the Seeds Impact Conference. So we had about 100 speakers in 29 sessions. And one of the sessions was on education with Francis Valentine and Claire Amos. And they had an amazing discussion. So I might put a link to that in in the show notes um, so we can go to that. Anyway, back to your life. <laughs> what was, because um, we're in New Zealand here now. So um, I actually lived in Hackney in London. Um, so a little bit different to where you were. But um, I remember London as an environment. What was it like growing up through primary school, through high school? Did you know what you wanted to study or what areas was appealing to you? I, I n- never had any idea what I wanted to do. I was always envious of people that did. Uh, I sort of felt there was something missing in me for not having this sort of chip of knowing what I wanted to do. Um, instead, I, I just experimented with a lot of things. Um, so the school I went to was quite traditional. Um, and I ended up sort of leaving there and sort of pulling out of the university system because I was sort of pushed into things that I wasn't that, I just didn't want to do. And um, sort of re-enrolling a year later, um, I did a psychology degree, which um, was a sort of reasonably new subject back then. Um, and I guess that sort of started to open up my learning into many different sort of fields and paradigms. Or, you know, you start to see the weirdnesses between them as well. Like in neuroscience, like you need a correlation that's sort of right up here but in evolutionary science it's right down there is acceptable for the same sort of level of conclusion and you know you start to sort of think this doesn't doesn't quite stack up either or there's lots of sort of um interdependencies that that, that didn't quite make sense so it mm-hmm. started to move me on again um so i picked up a a job on a graduate scheme for a big insurance company and uh I think the the idea there for me was just just go and get some good training, and um, you know at least then you'll be sort of progressing your skills. And I went and experimented with all sorts of things. Um, I did some uh, outdoor adventure activities. I was sort of running youth development um, expeditions for a for a charity based out of London. Did that for a bit. Um, I did a lot of um, coaching and sort of leadership development. Um, type courses that were much more experiential um, than, than than learning the theory. Um, and then after a while, well, I wasn't, wasn't very settled in the UK. The, if you wanted to sort of change your career, you had to take 10 steps backwards in it and compete for entry-level positions, which I wasn't very happy about. Because um, I thought all the experience that you've built it might not be an academic qualification, but it's very rich in terms of your, you know, ability to solve problems or join in. Um, and we'll move to Wellington, where I guess I left the corporate world behind and you start picking up um, well, government type questions, which for me was, it was really joyful. You, the doing things just to create shareholder value never really had much purpose in it you know there was a it sort of felt a little mercenary at one level but also and how does this make people's lives better you, you know you can make a better product or something like that but ultimately you're fishing more money out of people's pockets um mm. which uh, is fine but it, it doesn't sort of meet you in the heart of, of something that is important but i discovered public service work where your job every day is to make life better for people. And there was a huge amount of discipline from the private sector that that just felt really relevant, you know, finding ideas, making things happen. And much of the work that I'd done over the years was really going and talking to people that experienced the problem or the opportunity firsthand and pulling that experience back to the center to try and create some improvement. In the insurance world, that was either about efficiency, effectiveness, or some sort of workflow solution, identifying a new segment or that you could create more advantage in. But I found working with the government agencies that actually it was real life experience to drive policy making or drive investment decisions. Um, and there weren't many tools or processes for, for doing that. Like there's a lot of 
paper or uh, bureaucratic boundaries to hide behind. Um, but that sort of pulling um, experience into the center to decide, well, what does this do for these people? Um, mm -hmm. was, uh, was very popular, but frustrating at the same time. You sort of pull experiences in that people have to deal with um, or framing arguments for things based on real world impacts on people. And uh, it was like the um, start of the service design or customer centered design stuff coming into, uh, into government. Well, I can see where we're headed in terms of what you're involved in today. I'm just curious about New Zealand. Like, when did it come on your radar? Because <laughs> it's an awful long way from London. How did, how did it end up that you chose to come here? I was married to a Kiwi. And it's in the rules. <laughs> and wow. so you met over in yeah. in the UK? Yeah. Yeah. And I think... Um, I, England is, is not a country I've ever felt a part of i spent a huge amount of my 20s not in the country and just going back there because that's where my stuff was right and when i thought about my future there i could see myself chasing bigger better jobs but they weren't ones that i wanted to do mm. um the lifestyle there was you know there might be a lot to do um a lot of activities to pursue but your ability to do them is actually quite low um, because you're either working all the time or you're tired from that. So if you want to head off on a climbing trip or a camping weekend or something like that, it's, it, it's a lot to organize and then try and fit in. Mm. And I think for, for people that grow up in the UK, you know, New, New Zealand is this tropical paradise. <laughs> it's easy to imagine moving here. But, yeah. but being here, I've been here for 12, 13 years now and, uh, I feel a part. I feel like I've got roots down. And mm. um, I think it's, it's difficult when you come to live somewhere that you didn't grow up because there's so many things that are just so instinctively familiar about the way people do things. I don't feel I've connected to that, but I do feel that there's a sort of synergy about the way people like to enjoy their lives and, and, and me here that, that's welcomed. Mm. Those are interesting reflections because I, before we hit record, I was telling you I'd lived in London for a couple of years. My wife is English, so we have a lot of connections, family connections back there as well. We go back to visit and grandparent, you know, like there's reasons to go. But I always felt like it was, um, obviously the history is amazing. <laughs> you you look <laughs> buildings that were built 500 years ago and or or older. Um, and I love that part of it, but it also is a very, it's really hard to describe it in words, but it's a very intense place. You know, if you're anywhere you go in London, there will be people all the time. You know, it's, it's not a, like a restful type of environment. Whereas in New Zealand, like you're in Wellington, I'm in Christchurch. It's pretty easy. You could, you could be in nature within 10 minutes, you know, somewhere, it's all accessible. And I think that's something that is quite a contrast between the countries. There's yeah. that, um, the, the histories I always used to find quite easy to connect to over in the UK. And that's an aspect that I'm quite nostalgic about. I guess, you know, I choose nostalgia because I don't miss it. You know, it's more a sort of thinking fondly of an old feeling than, mm. you know, something to sort of miss or recreate. But I, I watched, um, Ken Loach's film, the, the Old Oak, with with my partner Frida at the weekend, and Durham, and this is all set in the sort of Durham, and you sort of see all these villages and towns um, in the movie, and I, I I was sucked into what it felt like to be around that the you know communities that were hundreds and hundreds of years old, and uh, you know the buildings that were thousand years old. Um, mm. It's very easy just to be pulled back into the feeling of being around that um but you don't you don't get that in new zealand yeah yeah no that's right it's a different type of different type of history different type of environment and it's something that i really love and have found a lot of meaning from the nature itself and and being so connected to the the mountains the rivers the streams you know the the ocean so well that's really interesting the um where you got to so that 
I'm just curious in terms of what you're doing today, talk about that transition, I guess, between the work that you were doing and then what it is that you've moved into and and what's shaping, yeah, how has that shaped what you do today? Well, the start we were talking about, you know, when I was five and um, I was sort of talking about the, uh, or the experience I had of, you know, walking home and then being shamed for it was it sort of undermined the, the sense of everything that I could bring and offer. And, and that's the thing that sort of stuck with me. And I think having grown through my twenties and doing the the work that I was doing at, um, you know, the insurance company. And I mixed that with, um, you know, the outdoor adventure stuff that I was doing and a few other things. And I always felt in that, that I wasn't doing anything that anybody else couldn't do. I just chose to do it. Or, you know, perhaps I had some um, privilege sitting behind that that made it easier for me to do. Um, but it wasn't something that was special about me. And coming into work at in uh, the government work in, in Wellington and, and, you know, trying to bring people's experiences to the, to the centre is really about thinking that people are the solution to most of the problems that we have. You know, not systems or technology. I mean, those might be involved in things, better machinery, better process flows or whatever, but it's, it's people that have the ideas. It's people that um, experience the problems, but but also are involved in creating the solution to anything. And when I was sort of looking back over, you know, the 10 years or so that, that I was doing that, it always seemed to be putting people at the center and talking to people in ways that empower them to solve their own problems without needing to defer centrally um, as, as being something that created momentum. Um, it created engagement. It created people having a sense of agency around their vocational passion. The last job that I did in the public service was a, was a WorkSafe, a health and safety regulator, um, which is where I met, met Daniel Homadal. Um, and our job there was really to help shift the focus away from controlling people. This is most health and safety problems are usually, you know, people being told what to do. People don't like being told what to do. And it takes away their ability to solve problems as they arise because you look for the rules, but you don't have the rules in front of you when you're in the middle of a little drama. Um, so it, it all becomes about setting things up to go well, setting people up to go well, talking to people to understand what their needs are and how they can resolve issues amongst themselves or with the resources they have, what more can you do? And it led us to, or just as we were thinking about winding up what we were doing at WorkSafe, it's sort of time to, time to move on, um, thinking about what to do. And the, the things that really struck us were that if you do think about people as not just as a sort of commodity or as a set of tools to do what you tell them to do, but you start to invite them in to offer their contributions. You start to find really novel ways of solving problems, ways that you couldn't have imagined. And it's actually not very difficult to do. It feels confusing because, you know, for, for leaders, it's, you get this sort of, um, sort of binary response sometimes, you know, as well, I'm giving away all the control. It's like, well, not, not really, mm. you're sort of inviting people in to come and help solve problems with the constraints that you've got. That's, that's more help. Um, and you know, sometimes you sort of get these sort of responses of, um, you know, well, if it's not broken, why should we do this? And well, sometimes, you know, problems are experienced by many people, but they don't, nobody has the sort of single solution or the single responsibility for things. Mm. Um, you know, you think about our infrastructure sector, for example, short-term contracts are sort of known to be a big problem. Um, 
that drive bad outcomes to everything, whether it's productivity, waste, um, health and safety. It's sort of full of negativity for lots of things. But no one person solves that. That has to be a bunch of people that come together and all make changes at the same time. Mm. And unless we start to sort of pull people together, not really going to change that. So mm. we're really in a position thinking what to do next. And there just seems to be a big opportunity to bring um, management practices, problem-solving practices, sort of program management practices that focus on sort of bringing people in mm. to solve complex problems or I guess you don't sort of solve them but to start to create momentum you know, talking to yeah. the Wellington Regional Leadership Council their urban planning is this sort of mixture of individual wants and needs up against the collective wants and needs and they're sort of pulling apart and if all you have is a binary choice of what are we doing collective or individual you're not going to create stability you're not going to create a world where people are understanding each other to find a better settling point mm. um, so think we, this is a um i'm just curious about this because it 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 resonates what you're saying in the sense of in a way there's like a fundamental shift that's maybe happening or has happened or one day will change further um what i mean by that is what you're I could be wrong, but I think what you're talking about is like a hierarchical structure where there's a decision maker at the top and they make a decision and then it flows down in the organization. And the person down here just says, well, that person said I had to do it. So therefore I'm going to do it. Whereas what you're talking about is more of a actually people centered approach of both consultation and implementation and rolling it out in a way that actually gets everybody involved um it's i read the book i did a little book review of it um it was it kind of encapsulated some of this shifting because i think in our old mindset it is very hierarchical it's like well the boss said i had to do it so therefore i'm doing it or something like that or, or the president said i had to do it or the prime minister or there's a hierarchy but um this book is called new power and I think it was by um, Jeremy Hymans and Henry Thames. So I did a short review. It's like eight minutes long, just thinking about some of the concepts. And I think it resonates with what you're talking about too, because it, it, what they were talking about was that actually we're moving into a different age or a different way of having influence. And instead of it necessarily being um, a person, uh, an individual that imposes it's actually building a collective of thought that then can change. And the examples that they gave were things like Black Lives Matter. You know, you can't point to one individual and say, look, that's the founder of Black Lives Matter. Um, there are lots of important individuals, but it's not like there's one, one person. It's like a collective or a group that it all happened and it and it came together. And I don't know, there's just some thoughts there that I think it might resonate with what you're talking about. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I, th I think it's a, uh, that idea of sort of new power is, um, it's, it's, it's almost sort of drawing on everybody that might be involved or affected by something to, yeah. to create a flow. Um, and in that way, you don't, you don't have to spend, years coming up with a problem statement that everyone can agree with and in the whole meantime everything changes anyway um, you can sort of draw on people's insights and what matters to them it doesn't matter if they're slightly different um, you know for example you know we're talking to Waka Katahi recently they want to reduce deaths and serious injuries and you kind of think well, well that's all right but what are people doing when you have made that reduction like are people saying i'm i'm reducing deaths and serious injuries or what are they actually doing what's the, mm. the the thing that is happening in their lives and it's not a reduction in death and serious injuries it's it's going to be something else it might be well i'm riding my bike on a specified cycle or it might be you know 
if you run a haulage firm, my assets are on the road for longer and not interrupted. You know, these are the sort of the sort of positive things that people are stepping towards that they can connect and organize their energy around. Um, and sometimes they don't even have to be the same thing. You know, you can just sort of, it's a bit like in Plato's cave, you see, see the shadows on the wall. Um, they all come from a flame, but you, you just deal with your own shadow because yeah. that's the bit yeah. that matters to you. Um, but it's a, it's surprisingly straightforward to sort of get people to sort of offer their energy and resources, you know, behind a cause like, like that, when you invite them in and allow them to sort of put some of themselves within it, um, the hierarchy might sort of break down, but it's less relevant because people are sort of moving the frontier along. Mm. Yeah. And I think you see it a little bit as well it, these days as a practical outworking, like this isn't just a theoretical thing. Look at consumer choices. What are they buying? How are they using their money? What are they purchasing? I had um, Brianne West who founded Etik on a, a couple now about a year ago, I think. Anyway, she was describing the the pitch was not just the shampoo, but also you're not using plastic bottles and therefore consumers were drawn to that product and to what she was offering. It was a story, you know, it was, and, and here's the key. You can be part of the story of reducing the plastic use in the world by choosing this product. And I think we're seeing that more and more, um, that, that people are realizing that's part of the, the, the reason that people buy things, um, I, I I know this is a different topic, but marketing, it's always about how you can make the person the hero of the story. You know, like I want to show you how you are the, the real hero and by investing in this Kiwi saver or buying this type of car or whatever it is, like involving them in, in that, which is, I think, maybe a bit different to the past where it was more of an imposed, like, well, this is the option and the option is one, you know, there's a, a wonderful book. This is quite old now um, called a single organizing idea that uh, was a, a, trying to sort of move businesses beyond the sort of greenwashing or corporate social responsibility idea. Mm. And instead to think about their, their products as what, well, what do they do? What is, what is it that you're, or the idea that your business is contributing towards that people yeah. might want um, or the thing that they're choosing when they're choosing you. And I remember going through this with the insurance company and your insurance is full of, um, you know, we're putting our prices up. We're not playing your claims. You know, it's a very distressed place, isn't it? And uh, the insurance company sort of moved into this sort of what's, what's the idea of our products. And I thought it was quite, quite lovely in the end they, they thought their products were peace of mind you know if you buy a product you can have peace of mind you know you might mm. have a piece of paper with some terms and cover limits on it and so on but the product that they felt they were offering was that you know you, you felt some security um or that in you know in parting with your money you, you weren't just sort of getting um you know piece of paper or this sort of sense that you know do might be staved off but actually you know confidence that you can keep going your business will be able to find different premises and function effectively if your house is flooded you know you'll go and live here and it will be covered and it will be stressful and traumatic but you'll be okay um, but that idea that the business is contributing to is is um is is creating in people yeah it can only be drawn from the people um mm. you have to go and sort of listen to their experiences and understanding and in having peace of mind it, it shifts the way you deliver those products too um because everything becomes in service of that i think you're right and i think I, i'm just reflecting on my own work and what i do so as well as this podcast i'm a lawyer and what I'm trying to do there is keep people safe from a legal perspective. I will help keep you safe in whatever startups or contracts or buying this or that. 
And therefore, one of the outworkings is I will provide free information for people so that they can access and understand what's needed to keep them safe. So I guess what I'm saying is it it comes back to how can I serve the people, right? Like, how can I make something that is helpful for them, um, mm. which is often not what we would intuitively necessarily think. It, it, we would think, oh, it's it's about how great my product is, but actually it should be about how can I serve more people with what I do? Yeah, so I guess in, you know, extending that single organizing idea, your your product in, in, or in that little description is, you know, you're providing security for people, um, mm. safety or, or a, you know, you know, sense of stability that they can operate from, um, yeah. you know, a safe place. Which is very powerful, like that. How does that affect you and the way that you talk to people about the advice you give? Yeah, I think it's changed over the years. Like, I really like the idea that it shouldn't be about me. Like, I'm. It's not about me. It's about them. It's about supporting them and helping them. That's why I like that concept of helping someone else be the hero of their story like identifying what it is that I can do to help them. I, I use the word catalyst a lot. So being a mm -hmm. catalyst for impact or helping people on their journeys. Um, I think it's definitely affected the type of, or the way that I talk about what I do and then the type of thing that I end up doing. And I guess it, the the cynical part of me would say, well, what this is all very nice, but we've got massive problems in the world today. So thinking about that, I guess the answer would be, well, look at climate change and look at the impact on our children. And and if what we're saying is true, then maybe there is it is possible to have massive change within a short time, as long as we can take everybody on the journey of advocating or, or demanding, maybe is the better word, that we have to change things. Um, I look... You know, we've had a, a bit of smoke-free type of comments in the last uh, while with new governments and things. But I remember as a child getting on the airplane and every single seat had a little place where the cigarettes could be put to snuff them out. So if you've built into the infrastructure of the airplane that there's an expectation that someone might smoke and might use that, then there's also a permission that this is fine. Like I remember getting on 747s and it was smoky, you know, like the whole cabin was full of smoke because people were smoking. But look at the change that's happened in a relatively short period of time. Like that's just not done. It's just not acceptable. So I, I take comfort from that example. I think there are also examples of there's no one solution to it. It needs many people to start to step forward in in unplanned but somehow coordinated ways. You know, there might be some policies that are made that that make it harder to smoke or find smoking um, or stuff you can actually sort of smoke with. But it needs to sort of go with, oh well, you know, the airline chooses to start to design those things out. Yes. Um, there are sort of negative things that happen as well when you don't you remember one firm I worked for, you know, different business units on different floors. You always want them to work better together. The people that work best together were the ones that smoked because they went outside at the same time and chatted out the back. So, you know, you sort of mm, create yep. other problems. How do they work better together? You have to put other things in. Um, so not everyone's going to advocate for it. And if your solution is just to tell them or stuff you, you've got to tag along. It, it doesn't, doesn't help everybody step into solving a problem. Um, you know, you create these sort of marginalizing people and then sort of binary arguments that we're going to swing between. Um, but by sort of pulling people into a conversation about how do we want to be smoke-free? Yeah. Um, what are the ways that we can do that? What are the shifts that we can all make or that we now might tolerate with the social license that's created? Um, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a more mature way of trying to bring change to people that sort of mm. decentralizes all of the arguments into your own experience mm. instead of 
well, let's set a rule centrally and hope everyone's going to follow it. Yeah. It's a tricky one, though, as well, because there is a place for reminders or requiring things. The reason I'm mentioning that is like from a legal perspective in New Zealand, there's about 850,000 companies, right? To become a company, all you need is the name of a shareholder, a director, and the name of a company. That's it. You don't have to say what your mission and your purpose is. So for a long time, I've been advocating that as part of the infrastructure of advocating more mission-driven companies, it would be good if we required new startups to say what their mission was, what their purpose was in their constitution. So you could do that pretty simply. You would just require every new company must have a constitution and you must state what it is that you want to do. Um, but it would be an example of something that is then causing people to think about it and mm. requiring them to articulate it. Um, but nobody's taken my phone call yet on that one. So, <laughs> but I guess it's an example of like, we can have the the ground up type things, but sometimes there are infrastructure type bits and pieces that can help as well to implement change. Yeah, I think it reminds me of a experience we had a couple of years ago where um, oh, we were looking at um, underground cable strikes. So wherever anyone's digging a hole in the ground, whether it's, you know, you know, some sort of drainage ditch or it might be digging up a road or whatever, there's, there's so many things under there, you know, water, electricity, gas, um, fiber optics, and they're all, you know, they, they get hit once a day nobody really collects the data on on how often so they all accept it it's probably about once a day but probably a lot more than that um yeah but it's one of those things is nobody's problem because all the different companies involved in digging holes in the ground all the different councils involved in you know mapping stuff or not wanting to map stuff or not having the money all the time to and um so it's the people digging the holes that are at risk or sometimes it's in the neighborhood you know we had one guy talked about the time he hit the um telecommunications wire which switched off someone's medical device and nearly killed them and uh it just traumatized him for ages that one but uh nobody owns a problem and we pulled people together to talk about it um sometimes it was the people that do the markings. Sometimes it's the people that dug the holes or the spotters. Sometimes it's the general managers or leaders from the companies involved. And they, it was really interesting. It was one of the first times that I've seen an industry advocate for strong rules to follow. But what it would do would be a, a step up for everyone into doing things consistently so that at least you could start from where we're at now start to build a better map of what's underground where, but also set better standards um, and guidance about how we want to dig holes. You almost sort of professionalize the digging of the holes into a, into a thing that people can learn to do um, with the right tools and inputs to dig them better in the right places, more consistent mm -hmm. technology use, more consistent um, processes that people can use. So absolutely, like rules have a place, but there's a there's there's a nice sort of collaborative way of trying to shape what kind of rules you might want where. Yeah, well, um, the the thing that I'm liking about this conversation is that we're going all over the place, <laughs> and I like I love to chat about those things, and and we've used the word change, we've used the word impact. I'd love to center it back to open change because that's something that you've gotten um, relatively recently getting started. Can you tell us a bit more specifically about that venture and what it is um, and what it is that you're hoping to do with that? Well, essentially, it's a, it's a business that is about change um, and change management. But what we're wanting to bring to people is ways to involve more people in the change that you wish to seek. Instead of doing change to people, what if we did it with them? Um, now, that might be through, you know, from an industry association point of view. You know, what, what happens when we sort of bring our membership together 
um, and start to understand what their real concerns are and network them to support each other instead of having that sort of hierarchy of coming up and coming down. It might be from a, an individual business point of view. How do we create improvements um, to some of the challenges that we have? You know, that might be around finding efficiencies, finding more effective ways of doing things. It might be unlocking problems and challenges. I remember a logistics firm that we helped. It started from a health and safety point of view, you know, wanting to log near misses in the yard. But where they got to by talking to their people was that the game changer for them was better scheduling of goods arriving in the yard, which was actually organized by a team that was through two security doors and up two flights of stairs. How can you break down the barriers between those groups so they could create their own improvements moving forward? But by finding ways to connect with what people want and need and their own energy and enthusiasm for creating change, mm -hmm. I think we'll make more sustainable changes, better changes. Um, perhaps it's one of the keys to unlock the sort of productivity challenges that we have in New Zealand. How much do we access the potential that's sitting in people? Um, and I feel at the moment with most of the conversations that I see is it's not that great. We're good at telling people what to do, but we're not good at involving them in heading off in a direction where they can apply their own skills, ingenuity, uh, creativity, um, or problem solving now to what's in front of them. And so how would you go about so yeah, well, that's that's the bit that I'm interested in. How would you go about starting that process? Like, let's keep it pretty simple. There's an issue. There's a problem. There's something. How do you go about the next stage of actually working out? I guess this is the first question: who to ask to be involved, or yeah, what's that process going to look like? I think the first thing is really thinking about the type of challenge that you have on your hands. Because most problems are not simple. There isn't a clear answer. You know, do this one thing and it's solved, whether that's, you know, in terms of, you know, creating a better process flow um, within a business or to achieve a government outcome. Um, usually there's lots of participants with different points of view. Um, and our approach is, is really bringing those people together uh, so that you can listen to what's on their mind and why that matters, um, because it will create a space where everybody can see either the constraints that other teams are working under, which are often quite hidden, but also you create a common purpose about the thing that you're working towards. So challenges often come up, like I want to uh, um, reduce the amount of time that it takes to do X. But the motivating factor is usually what that allows people to achieve. Why is that important and what does it let you do? And when you start to think about that uh, positive future that people want, not just eliminating a deficit, but the, the thing that helps you thrive, people start to really lean in with um, their own ideas and solutions. You shift the frame of reference of what the project is into something that you want to achieve. Um, and teams, individuals, different businesses start to come together to want to figure out how they want to do it, to share and collaborate. Yeah, it's really good. I guess it's partly a reframing for people who are used to being told what to do to approach them and say, what do you think we should do? You know, like it's almost a different mindset shift, isn't it? Yeah, we, we've been running a... Um, a health and safety series called health and safety recrafted where most people are gloriously dissatisfied with health and safety it's so easy to complain about you know the problems you know whether it's bringing change getting leaders involved in something getting people to actually care or be interested as soon as someone says safety you know, people sort of glaze over and that's the end of it and uh, we've been running a series to try and help practitioners to um, well bring the changes that they want in their companies and part of the last session that we ran um, we looked at the the strengths that the community the sector has so instead of 
the next problem of, you know, well, I can't get people to join into my initiative. You know, my general manager is, is, is not understanding this, whatever it is. So don't, don't focus on the problem. What, where are you at that lets that be a problem for you? What are the strengths that we have in our sector that we can't quite shine a light on? And it took them a little while of just head scratching and, you know, just sort of getting their head into sort of answering those questions. But where they ended up was that there are a range of technical disciplines available to them that fit together neatly and support each other. It lets them think about problems in terms of the immediate issue affecting a worker, how that is designed into the system, and then the way that regulations and legislation, et cetera, all set that up to happen. They realize that most people in health and safety want something different, completely different. They realized that they had businesses that were ready to try new things. They realized that they had the skills amongst themselves to create those new practices and learn from each other. And they realized that the workers, particularly younger workers, expect and want something different. And when you start there, like how can you not create change when you've just set that as your baseline? Mm. Um, so by, I guess, sort of bringing a focus on what's strong between people instead of the, the easy negative bonding, um, it, it created a really rich landscape where they could offer their skills to each other to help them in their initiatives when they went back to their businesses. It was quite powerful. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I think that's, well, health and safety, in some ways, is a good example. Like, I, I do quite a lot of presenting for the Institute of Directors. So I go in and talk with senior governance about their responsibilities. And health and safety is a big one, as you know. And one of the interesting comments that I often get back is something along the lines of, yeah, we created a guidelines for our workers. It was perfect. 300 pages, footnotes, dense text, explaining everything. No one ever read it. And <laughs> the incidences continued. Then we translated the 300 pages into diagrams and pictures and actual real things that they could identify with. And it suddenly changed, you know, the, the culture changed to this is important for all of us to be part of. Um, and also, I think there was a shift in the governance actually caring about health and safety instead of saying, yeah, we did a policy, tick that box, move on. They actually were asking what's going on. Let's get feedback. Mm -hmm. Let's talk with people and improve the situation. So, yeah, it's a really interesting example. Well, they are nice ways of involving people in, in what's happening. And I, I feel like that's a big part of what our open change business is, is about too is there's so many projects, programs, problems, uh, they're dynamic. You, know, you might want to sort of reorient a new path in a new product set. You know, there's a set of steps to go through, but where anything's at at one point is quite dynamic. And the more you can involve the workers, but also the managers and leaders in what is dynamic and how is that right now? The easier it is for people to, to understand what needs to happen next. So the, the role of a leader is still responsible, but perhaps they become more about um, permission giving for the right direction to head in or sanctioning the, a suitable amount of leeway for decisions to be happening within. Mm -hmm. It allows momentum and it allows progress. And, uh, you know, the, the role then for um, the person doing the work is, is to move things forward and make decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it creates more go forward. It creates more momentum, particularly for things where there is no straightforward answer. Um, and, you know, whatever is happening depends on whatever the context has shifted to. It's an, it is. It's a, these are interesting concepts as well. I think for the individuals listening to this conversation, I think there's a lot that we can be 
learning <laughs> as we're talking, like permission giving leadership. That's really intriguing because instead of saying, I'm the leader, you must have this memo to me by tomorrow at 9 a.m. or whatever, you know, it's actually saying, here's the problem. I want you to go and think about it and come back to me with what you think the solution is. Maybe that's a memo, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's uh, whatever you think, you know, like, and, and that involves some trust from the leader, doesn't it? To be able to empower the person to go away, think about it deeply, and then come back rather than a more of a, well, go back to your school at five years old. Like you must do it this way. It's more mm -hmm. of an empowering approach to leadership and to solution focused thinking. I think it's also respectful of the power that people have. I do think mo most people at work want to do a good job. And most yeah. people at work are pretty smart. Um, they're able to move things forward. And, uh, and I think empowering that, you know, particularly for problems that don't have clear solutions, it's best to head off in that direction, know what that direction is. Uh, I was remembering a story a, a little while back about um, oh, with the first Labour government, the recent one, um, where one of the organisations I was helping had three ministers. They had someone from NZ First, from Labour and from the Greens. They all wanted different things. And you think, how? <laughs> how can you create forward momentum when you've got parties pulling apart but the solution we came up with was when providing advice up instead of giving sort of scenario abc type things which is asking people to take singular positions send up a matrix where they're going to move around depending on what they were talking about so you could move between like if the conversation started to move more about a regional economic development well, that's fine, but you start to see what's falling off when you move further away. If you move you know, into the more sort of climate-centric things, then you could start to see how the other outcomes would start to fall away. And it was a really nice way of putting the, the decision makers really into the complexity that they were managing. And um, it was quite a neat way, too, of getting them to realize the boundaries, I suppose, where, where their outcomes could meet, like the compromise zones. You know, you head too far this way and it started to create a bit of uh, difficulty. So you just come back a little bit, but you start to find where those zones were. And I think by framing um, advice or the context or the problem in, in much more dynamic ways, I think it actually helps leaders to will make better decisions. Mm. I remember after that one, one of the ministers thanked us for, for helping him sort of understand and explain how difficult his job was. And I remember that because it, it sort of validated that approach for me of, you know, immerse these people in what's happening. You know, if you sort of stand behind papers or, you know, sort of artificial scenarios about things, it, it doesn't help you have the direction by immersing them in it and you need to be a little creative to do that i think but it, it helps leaders to know where they're at and know what mm -hmm. decisions they should be making or i'm happy with making this decision but only up until this point <laughs> and it it can really help people move forward mm. yeah that's really helpful and i think people are listening who are leaders will find that helpful just that way of thinking about what you're doing and empowering people um, I'm hoping to get an author on um, on the podcast and I'm soon who's written a book called Orchestration. And the idea is that, that a good leader is like the conductor. I, I haven't done the interview yet, so I haven't talked to him about this, but it, I, the image I'm imagining is going to be like the conductor of an orchestra that you're, you, you're signaling to people, start now, go there, keep the rhythm, but you're not controlling what they do. You're actually orchestrating it and and causing the music to to come to life um which i think is quite a helpful way of thinking as well it's a delightful metaphor isn't it yeah yeah i'll send yeah. you a link to the um yeah. the website because you might be interested <laughs> it's nice to think you don't don't control the individual music yeah. that's 
being made you're you're into the flow or you know you're controlling the the rhythm or the ability to have rhythm and flow and and harmony between things which i, I think that's quite quite delightful yeah yeah i'll send you um a little link over and you can have a look yourself it's interesting yeah. daniel um daniel daniel wanted to sort of name our business after a a jazz quartet we couldn't quite oh, okay. think of a name that flowed off the tongue <laughs> yeah right yeah well, it's kind of, yeah, there's a lot of synergy, isn't there, between the metaphors or the similes of music and and creation and the art of, I think sometimes we get so caught up in thinking about business as being almost like a mathematical formula. Like if you have one and if you have two, it will always equal three. But actually, uh, there's a lot of art that comes to creating new things. And sometimes I think we've kind of blocked off that part of our minds which is the art artistic side um and you mentioned frida before i know she's come out with this kiwi diary um mm. which is an amazing example of empowering a massive group of people right i'm not sure how many individuals there are but there's a lot of people who've contributed artwork poetry um uh, recipes like real variety of things to create this diary that then enhances people's thinking right moving forward so yeah it's a pretty good example of that yeah yeah that's uh 40 50 people joining into a direction an idea that has sort of meaning purpose in a direction and i think our our belief daniel and my belief is that organizations can be the same you can still have discipline around decision making around you know, hitting budgets or, you know, whatever targets that you have. But when you do start to sort of see people as your collaborators and as the, the pathway through which change happens, you know, and pulling them into it, it, you create these wonderful things that, you know, you couldn't quite see at the beginning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I contributed a reflection on, uh, I think it was about braided rivers and the, the direction that our lives can take and how sometimes it's like a braided river that you're moving in the same general direction with the same purpose, but you might end up over here for a while and then back over here. You have to be open to that possibility. Um, anyway, we'll put a link to the, the Kiwi Diary in the show notes so that people can find it because it's a great um, present for people and a great example of a group that have now come together to create something which I really love. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're drawing to the end here, um, Rob, I'm just thinking back. Um, are there any, yeah, are there any target type of clients that you're after? Are you open to talking to anybody who's looking at change? And yeah, what what sort of messages would you give to people? We've thought quite long and hard about who to target. And as soon as you start heading down one pathway, we feel like you're eliminating others. And so I feel like where we've got to is if you believe in trying to unlock the potential of people, then we're a business that could probably help you. If you are a, you know, a government organization, your outcomes are complex. So how do you manage your participants and stakeholders to try and build a, a future that people want to be a part of and see themselves in? If you're a big company, then perhaps you've got challenges that you wish people would step into to improve the way that the organization works. What company doesn't want all of their staff contributing to improvement in some way? But we've been helping some businesses to create sort of decentralized sort of movements through their business to create improvements and, and change. Um, and it's surprising how sticky they become you know people mm. care about what they create and if they're involved in creating it it sticks so we feel our business is sort of relevant and open to private sector as well as the as well as the government sector um it sort of expresses itself in different ways mm. but the core of it is if you need to connect with the potential that your people have and I'd argue that most organizations need that. Then 
we're a business that is 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 relevant to you and and happy and open to talk to you about the the problems and the opportunities that you might have that's great well that's the point of the podcast is to hear these different ideas and to be able to hear about new initiatives like yours so we'll put in the show notes a link to the website and I know you've got some articles and things there on different topics that are related to what we've been talking about. Mm. Um, and if people are interested, then they, I'll add your email and people can reach out. Um, but I want to say thank you, Rob, for your time. Really appreciate your um, giving up some time to share a bit of your own journey, you know, hearing about your childhood and um, way back when you were five years old and walking home. And, and I think that in a way signaled what you would end up doing, doing things a bit differently. <laughs> Um, moving to the other side of the world, but now actually setting up a, something which is all about change. And the thing that I've taken away from this conversation is that idea that as leaders, we need to be willing to empower people to actually come up with the solutions rather than trying to impose the solutions that we think is the right answer. Mm. Um, so that I think there's some challenging thoughts there for anybody who's listening, because we all are leaders in our own way. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that you would come on and share with me. Hey, thank you, Stephen. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed this. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rob. There was lots of highlights for me, and I enjoyed hearing about his life story and the things that have motivated him and what he's doing today. If you like this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? Until next time, kakiteano!